Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, remembering Governor Thomas Campbell, a progressive who battled to reform Texas for the little guy known as our fighting governor. Because they saw him fighting for the ordinary man in Texas that someone, the farmer, the small business owner, and and improving the life of Texans overall. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Thomas Mitchell Campbell served as governor of Texas for two two two-year terms from 1907 to 1911. This was a time when Texas was rural, agricultural, cotton was king, segregated, and poor. It was also the time known as the Progressive Era. The people were demanding government reforms to weed out corruption, enact consumer and worker protections, and install public education with a funding mechanism. Texans elected a liberal legislature and a governor with a reform agenda, Thomas Campbell. Janet Schmelzner writes about it in her book, Our Fighting Governor the life of Thomas M. Campbell, and the politics of progressive reform in Texas. It's published by Texas A&M Press. Schmelzner is also a professor of history at Tarleton State University. She argues that Campbell is a frequently overlooked champion of progressive reform in Texas history. The progressive era, generally speaking, means social, economic, and political reform, just for a simple definition. And it covers, the reform covers almost every aspect of, of American life. So in the social, you could be talking about um, health reform. Uh, you could be talking about how food is produced and delivered to the consumer for economic. You, would, you could talk about tax reform as an example, and for um, political, you could be talking about um, voting rights or you could be talking about uh, reform of uh, businesses, regulation, I should say, of businesses, railroads, monopolies, things of that nature. But this is still an era in Texas uh, it's post-Reconstruction and still very much segregated, not a whole lot of interest in inclusion of blacks or, or Mexican-Americans? I would have to agree with that. There, are, there is definitely the Jim Crow laws are, in effect, segregation of railroads and what they called uh, inner-city transportation. Um, so, yes, you still have uh, Jim Crow and not equality with... Uh, the, they, it, the blacks were considered to be... Um, second-class citizens. In Texas, the Democratic Party was uh, ruled supreme, and that was part of their power structure, was was maintaining that social hierarchy. Yes, it was, absolutely. It's really interesting because in in some legislation, um, especially concerning um, blacks should sit on uh, public transportation, in the files 
of each of the bills, the committee members make comments, and I found it very interesting in just this area that they were making comments that this would keep white women from having to sit next to a black man. So it was definitely in that mindset for, for that period of time in Texas. Progressive era, we talk about it nationally. Of course, we talk about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and, and, yeah. Ta- and Taft. They were Republicans. And, mm-hmm. but in, and so there was a different type of progressive era and reforms that came to the South and Texas. I would say the primary difference was in race. Because if you look at progressivism across the United States, there is the regulation of the railroads, there is tax reform, there is um, legis- legislation to stop monopolies and trusts. And so you look at that level of legislation, and then you start to say, well, what's different about Texas? Well, Texas uh, was Southern, and so any of that Southern culture also played into um, what progressivism looked like looked like here, and um, there would be health issues that they would be addressing, hookworm, malaria, things of that nature that they would want to eliminate. Um, and so the Southern culture also brought with it the um, the segregation, Jim Crow aspect. There was this is still also a time when the women did not have the vote, and there was also a drive for prohibition. Candidates yes. would be labeled either wet or dry. You're absolutely right, and the Democratic Party was dominant because that's that is coming. Um, it's dominant because of where the South was in the Civil War and the Confederacy, and once the once the Republicans were expelled, then the state voted Democratic. The Democratic Party back then was a very different party in that it was conservative in many respects and yet um, progressive. But that was a very, the progressive part was was a very small window of time. So there were two basic wings of the Democratic Party, a conservative and a progressive wing uh, or liberal wing, I guess you would say in today's terms. And for a while, then the progressives were able to get the upper hand. People look at James Stephen Hogg as as the person who, I guess, was the champion of that. Oh, absolutely. Hogg was considered the, the, the reform governor. For example, he wanted the regulations of railroads and, and monopolies and things of that nature. Um, and uh, he and Campbell were boyhood friends in East Texas, and Hogg always believed that Campbell would carry on the mantle of reform, and which is what Campbell would do. So their their philosophies were very, very close. They were considered progressive conservatives. And so that means they believe in reform, but there are some aspects that they still are conservative, and those would be some, you know, like Jim Crow and things like that. So they were considered progressive conservatives at that time. And just as a side note, I guess we should acknowledge that, you know, Governor Hogg did have a daughter uh, named Ima, but there was no daughter Yura. That's that's an urban legend. That's true. 
<laughs> Governor Hogg was uh, instrumental in bringing about the Texas Railroad Commission. Uh, they had to have a, a st- statewide uh, constitutional amendment vote, which won overwhelmingly. This was the first regulatory agency in Texas and was focused at the time on, on railroads. It wasn't until much later that it became in charge of the Texas oil and gas industry. But what was the big concern about rail at the time? The concerns about railroad, railroads and their, how they practiced their business was pretty typical across the country. Um, the, they thought that the uh, railroads were overcharging. Um, there was the problem with the short haul, long haul cost. It was always more expensive to do a short haul on the railroad than a long haul and um, discrimination uh, between uh, railroad customers, rebates, things like that. So there was a, a whole pool of practices of the railroad that were detrimental to the farmer and to anybody who did business with the railroad. So the railroad, I guess at the time, I guess comparable to the Internet today, and we have our debates about uh, net neutrality and trying to make sure that you're not gaming the system and, and hurting competition at the time. Exactly. People, people were dependent upon the rail to get their products, their farm products uh, to market, and uh, the rail could discriminate on, on, on certain customers. That, that was a, a problem. Yes, it was a very serious problem, and the... For instance, if you shipped on the railroad freight or, or, or a commodity from point A to point B, then you would put your freight on the railroad uh, at point A and you get to point B and the railroads would say, oh, you can only get your produce if you pay a higher freight rate. Well, what are you going to do? You can't let your commodities rot on the tracks. So... That would, I mean, that was extortion. You could say that they were holding the commodities hostage, um, forcing the the shipper to pay higher prices. That's just a little example, but the bottom line was it, the railroad was the heart of transportation and getting items from point A to point B. And so it was a monopoly, and in other words, they you, the old railroad term is you charge what the traffic will bear, and as a consequence, um, the railroads, without regulation, were um, able to do whatever they wanted. Now, the Interstate Commerce Act, the federal law of 1887, controlled various aspects of federal rail commerce, But the state was solely responsible for um, railroad commerce within the state of Texas. So if there was no interstate involved in a railroad, then it came directly under the Railroad Commission. Uh, But the Interstate Commerce Act, I guess it's worth mentioning, uh, that was authored by another Texas progressive. Yes, it was. John H. Reagan. Also also uh, Palestine. That's right. Well, East Texas was an extremely strong area of producing um, politicians that would rise to the top. So you do, you have, the, you have Reagan, you have Hogg, you have Campbell, 
And so, yes, it and Rayburn. It was and Rayburn, absolutely, and Rayburn, and um, later on, right, Patman. So, yes, it was. It generated a lot of high-level, very active um, politicians. But it's interesting how we have this strong tradition of progressive politicians coming out of uh, East Texas and Texas as a whole and this era of progressivism. And looking at the railroad question, I mean, I don't see how you could cast another issue in in terms that can be more pro-regulation or pro-business or bigger roles for for government and defending the little guy, you know, the conservative versus liberal typical argument. It's right there encapsulated in in what to do about the rail and, and and Texas took the bull by the horns and became, we want to regulate this business. Absolutely. Um, it was a, a sore spot, you could say, um, among progressives and those seeking reform. And, of course, the, you have the uh, agrarian protests that occurred in the 1890s with the populists and the, the Farmers' Alliance also, there was a strong local control uh, issues that, that was part of the philosophy of progressivism. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very interesting that um, we see in, uh, in the Campbell administration, we see that there is um, a dichotomy because you have certain things that the government must step in and do for the good of the population. And at the same time, uh, the progressives recognize that there has to be local control. Under some, some instances, there's going to be local control. So you've got, you know, you've got this uh, kind of working in opposite directions. So you have railroad regulation on the state level, but and, and regul- for instance, trying to regulate and, and, and improve education, but at the same time, they go back to local control for that. You're listening to Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin-Davies, speaking with Janet Schmelzner. She is the author of Our Fighting Governor, The Life of Thomas M. Campbell and the Politics of the Progressive Reform in Texas. So, uh, Janet, Thomas Campbell, is he largely a forgotten governor of Texas? Yes, and no, yes, he. People have acknowledged. Scholars have acknowledged that his administration was the uh, pinnacle of progressive reform in Texas. However, nobody ever really discussed Campbell as a leader of the progressive movement, and so in that way, he was obscure. And part of that goes back to a lot of the internal political fights in the Democratic Party um, before he became governor, where he'd be on one side and and uh, uh, politicos like uh, Edward House um, or George Clark would be on the other side. And so things that they said about the governor or things they said about Campbell um, became the standard identification. They, they kind of presented this image. And even um, governors like Oscar Colquitt, who did not get along with Campbell, or James Ferguson, who did not get along with Campbell, you know, they, his, his reputation was damaged um, 
because of what other people were saying. And so when I go when I wrote the book, I was reevaluating um, what he had done and concluded that he was actually a very active governor. He knew the, the he knew the issues. He knew what he wanted to do, and um, the result was that he pushed through by his own personal force. He pushed through the legislature many um, progressive laws that otherwise might have been done away with. Uh, I'll give you an example: the Hog Amendment, which. Um, uh, Governor Hogg tried to get through the legislature, but was un- in, in 1900 he was unable to. Well, Campbell was able to get that through the legislature, and that had to do with the prohibition of insolvent corporations and um, railroad regulation. And so, as a result of that, you know, you can see the force of the governor pushing of Governor Campbell pushing that through the legislature. So, in my my determination was that. Um, Campbell was a very strong governor, and people kind of pushed him aside in history because they focused on the legislation and not on the governor, and I believe part of that was due to the negative image that his, that his political opponents had managed to put forward. And, of course, Governor Hogg was this huge presence, great personality, uh, easy, easy to fall into his massive shadow in, in that yeah. way. And Campbell, of course, the way you write about him, it's, clearly he was smart as a whip. He seemed like a very intelligent man. And yeah. uh, I don't know how personable he was, though. Well, it, everything I have managed to see that would reflect on his personality, he he was... Um, Oh, absolutely. He was very, very approachable, um, had a great sense of humor. Uh, was but, but, more, but more to... on the quiet side? Well, he became known as the man of mystery when it came to, well, what was his opinion on certain things? And he would do that because reporters would ask him questions, and he would just smile, and and he would give you know, a very general answer, say, well, we'll see how this all turns out. But, um, and so they would often refer to him as the man of mystery because he would have this um, cat-in-the-hat smile, and they knew he knew something, but he would not reveal it. So it was, it, he was, he had a great sense of humor, um, and uh, he and he really wanted to work with the legislature. Now, and we do have a very progressive legislature at that time, but there are other there are there are those who are uh, who are very progressive in the legislature, and then there are others who are less so. So, so it seems like one of his great uh, victories, I guess, reform victories, was the institution of ad valorem taxes for the support of public schools. That was one of them. He believed in providing sufficient money for education, whether it, through local taxation, so that every student would be able to be in school for uh, at least six months of the year, that um, they would be able to um, have buildings, they would have good teachers with who, were, who received better pay, and so, yes, he was very 
involved in the reform of education. But I think it was a, a big funding issue, and he just believed that student, there should be enough funding to keep students in school at least six months. The title of your book is Our Fighting Governor. He's, mm-hmm. He was accused of being indecisive at times. Uh, so how do you defend the title Our Fighting Governor? Well, see, that's part of, of what I try to the, – the, the, uh, you talked about insight, the indecisive governor, and, the, and that's a reflection of what some people saw him in his leadership role. And that goes back to his, his – the political infighting that he would be involved in. And um, he's a fighting governor because he, in spite of odds against – certain kinds of legislation, child labor laws, uh, pure food and drug laws, uh, railroad regulation, um, he ran into obstacles. There were people in the, the House and Senate at the time, uh, both the, the Speaker of the House and the Lieutenant Governor, who worked against his programs. And so he worked, he, he, was, he fought for the people. Um, he talked about the battle he was going to fight for the people and um, that the common welfare was most important. So he, one of his, um, some of his constituents referred to him as our fighting governor because they saw him fighting for the ordinary man in Texas, that someone, the farmer, the small business owner, um, people like that, and, and improving the life of Texans overall, whether it's through health reform or pure food and drug or through um, fighting diseases. And um, so they saw him improving their daily life and that he, they knew he really had to fight in the legislature to get the legislation that they needed passed. So he, they referred to him, his own... His own contemporaries uh, referred to him as our fighting governor, and that's how the title was derived. The business interest in Texas, where were they at this time? The business interest in Texas, well, for example, insurance laws regulating the insurance business. We have uh, the Robertson insurance law, and that is a very strict regulation of insurance companies. And they refer to them as foreign companies. Because if they weren't Texas homegrown, then they were considered foreign, New York. It goes back to that old East-West fight as far as the East is trying to crush us. This goes back to the Civil War. The East is trying to crush us. Um, and now the New York banks are trying to take over the banking industry in Texas. The insurance companies are trying to come in and take over the insurance industry in, in Texas. And so the idea was, um, and Campbell referred to them as, as, as foreign corporations, and it was also part of what is called the colonial economy, and he was an anti-colonialist in the economy, which means he did not want foreign corporations or uh, corporations, especially from New York, coming in and uh, trying to take over the business because they saw foreign corporations as taking advantage of Texans and taking their money without providing any services. And so he would 
uh, identify them as foreign corporations, and then they would pass. There was legislation passed regulating, for example, insurance companies, and that and a lot of foreign or New York companies threatened to leave the state. And he said, "Oh, well, okay, bye." <laughs> uh, Campbell was also known for his reforms that he brought to the Texas prison system trying to yes. bring about more humane treatment of prisoners and ending yes. this policy of contract leasing of prisoner labor. Yes. Convict leasing means that prisoners of the Texas prison system would be leased to private individuals to work on farms or mines or on railroad construction, whatever it might be. And the argument was that the convicts who were leased were being treated inhumanely, bad or no living conditions, long work hours, um, and uh, a lot of abuse from guards, um, whippings and things like that. And so there was a drive, and this is also part of the progressive era, is trying to do something about prison reform. Texas was not unique. As a consequence, you have Campbell, who for years had talk, talked about prison reform, had asked the legislature to begin to, the process of putting new reforms in, limiting the, the strap or the whip, and uh, he talked about it extensively. What happens is that starting around 1908, there were exposés written about the Texas prison system. And the legislature, and Campbell asked the legislature to investigate. He said, if there's something going on, I want to know about it so we can fix it. So with the, this peak of outcry from the public and, and from the muckrakers, primarily in newspapers, uh, he put that on the legislative agenda for a special session, and and that law was then passed, reforming the prison system in 1910. Campbell really didn't get a lot of credit for prison reform. I, I feel like he was made a scapegoat of the criticism of the prison system, but he was, in fact, very active in trying to get prisons, uh, the whole penitentiary system, more humane, and you can see this in his correspondence with the prison board and saying, if there's any abuse, I want to know about it. Uh, he told convicts or inmates they could write him directly. Prison reform was one of those issues that I felt like hurt Campbell's image. It was the last act he signed as governor. So how is Thomas M. Campbell, governor, remembered today? Of course, his portrait hangs in the, as it does with all governors, his portrait hangs in the Capitol. As far as a statue, not that I've ever seen, and I probably would have seen it, his gravesite has um, an obelisk that is, commemorates his life. But as for, you know, we're, I think what, what happened when I wrote this biography, I was trying, wanted to bring forward who this man really was and what his role was in Texas Democratic politics. And so take him out of some obscurity and bring him to the forefront and say, this he was a key player. He was the leader of 
progressive reform in that period of time from 1907 to 1911. His image today should be the image that I have portrayed of him rather than is someone who is indecisive or colorless, was ineffective. Absolutely, that his image today should be very similar to Hogg. In fact, we see many of his contemporaries who were on his side or who were pro-Campbell compare him to Jim Hogg. Janet Schmelzner is the author of the book, Our Fighting Governor, The Life of Thomas M. Campbell and the Politics of Progressive Reform in Texas. It's published by Texas A&M Press. Schmelzner is also a professor of history at Tarleton State University. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can write to us with an email to texasmatters at tpr.org. You can also write directly on our website at tpr.org. That's where you can listen to past Texas Matters programs, and you can find us on iTunes. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.